and we are drawing closer to the end of another pandemic year and as long as we all do the right thing 2022 will be a much better year and Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett will be there. But today we hear the first part of a two-part interview with student journalist and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis looking at the recent history of Mexico, a country with a written history which spans three millennia. Then to another country in Latin America, Venezuela, and the deportation of diplomat Alex Saab from Cape Verde, where he was kidnapped 15 months ago to a prison in the US to face trial on trumped-up charges. And we'll be looking at the connections with Julian Assange. Joe Montero is a member of the Melbourne Support Group for Venezuela. Back home to inner suburban Brunswick and the results of the 2021 walking survey, I'll be speaking with a member of the Brunswick Residence Network, Nancy Atkin. 40 Years Young, that's the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and to look over those years and the challenges ahead, I'm speaking with the current president, Dr. Sue Wareham. And then there's the final two speakers in a recent Zoom meeting focusing on what we know about August. But we begin, as usual, with Mr. Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jan, listener, when great excitement as big supremo Scuttlebin Morlash's son, a.k.a. Scummo, finalises True Blue Aussie's policy to save the planet from climate change, if there is such a thing, as he prepares to head off to Scotland. Uh, yes, what is the policy, Scummo? No idea. You'll have to ask Barnacle. Oh, right, OK, well, there he is. Yeah, he's just over there talking to Matt and Bridget and, and George. The Hayseed and Sheepshit Party complained that it only had four hours in which to weigh up the issues and couldn't be rushed into a decision, which is fair enough, because up till last Sunday afternoon a week ago, no one had heard of this climate change, whatever it is. Seriously, I've been contemplating what would be the collective IQ in the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party room. Right up there, I suspect, with a oh, sorry, a uh, police convention, as they, the Hayseed lot, determine what Scuttlebem's policy will be, highlighting his strength as a leader, waiting hopefully outside the party room like a mournful dog, looking tied up at a at a shopping centre, staring hopefully at the door with his predecessor Malcolm Tunner Bull, who's clearly twigged that while Scummo was mouthing loyalty, he was busy sharpening the blade for the big stab in the back. Malcolm accusing Scummo of weakness for not telling the hayseed and sheepshit lot to stick it, obviously suffering a memory loss over how he dealt with them on the same issue when he had the chance himself to tell them to stick it. In fact, arguably even more craven, as he claimed he actually believed there was such a thing as climate change, whereas Scuttlebeam is being dragged screaming, thinking longingly of his great philosophical moment, taunting the Socialist Party with a big lump of beautiful, nothing-to-be-afraid-of coal. And now he's stuck with the big lumps in his coalition partner, unable to tell them to lump it. The big lumps will insist that agreeing to some target sometime beyond the end of the planet will demand concessions like removing the green tape that holds up progress and delays the profitable destruction of the planet. 
it will make it easier for farmers and miners to do what they do rather than have obstacles in the way, one of the great minds put it. Oh, and if the government wants to do something about pollution, it must also agree to leave a few new coal mines and coal-fired power plants on the agenda, likely financed by the public purse, seeing the market sees the writing on the wall. Uh, will this create problems at COP26, Scuttle Them? We are Scuttle Them. 26? It's more than 26. I've copped so much over this that no, no, it's much more than 26. No, no, the conference is called COP26. It is? Uh, let me make it clear, we will meet and beat our commitments. Despite that, the Climate Council, clearly a biased, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron front, reckons True Blue Aussie is last on the, in the OECD at addressing climate change, but leads the way in exporting fossil pollution all over the world, celebrated, no doubt, by the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, boasting at how True Blue Aussie leads the world. Angus provided information for the hayseed and sheepshit discussion, if the nonsense could be called discussion, which might provide them with at least some small excuse. Angus's title is, in fact, Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction. Obviously, no one's told him. A federal court beak attempted to tell, well ruled, that the Minister for Environmental Destruction, Susan Lees and Dregs, had a duty of care to True Blue Aussie children after some young people attempted to prevent her approval of yet another coal mine and coal mine extension. In this case, a white coal is heaven extension in New South Wales, and Susan's appeal hit the full court last week. Susan's so competent her argument that she has no duty of care to younger generations, and by inference only to the mostly men in suits in the corporate boardrooms, that even before the appeal hit court, she had already approved the mine, showing her great respect for the judiciary bit of the separation of powers. Of course, the depth of intelligence brought to the issue running through the hayseed and sheepshit party like a cow with diarrhoea was encapsulated by Matt Conavan of Cole, who bemoaned that adopting the Zero 2050 plan was like marrying a girl I've never met, but then outdoing that one with predictions are particularly difficult, especially when they're about the future, <laughs> as opposed presumably to when they're about the Past. Although even Matt might be a rough chance of predicting the past, or maybe not, he'd probably even have trouble with that. Wonder if he ever thinks before he opens his mouth. As energy miner and retailer Origin the Money came under criticism at its AGM over claims it had failed to consult with Indigenous owners over its Beetaloo Basin gas exploration in the Northern Territory, opposed selfishly by the Indigenous owners and environmental groups, it said it had consulted the Indigenous people. We just chose to ignore them, it explained. Thankfully, when the hayseed and sheepshit party extracts its price for agreeing to do something sometime about a non-problem, its constituents like Origin the Money won't have to worry about impediments to progress like green tape, consultation, wasting time, or they wonder how the traditional owners and environmentalists got the impression they had not been consulted when the company assures us they had been just shows we can't trust traditional owners and environmentalists.
As the government, on behalf of the respectable investment sector, conducts inquiries into the financial tragedy that industrial superannuation funds are far too powerful, unlike the respectable financial behemoths, that evil unions must be erased from looking after their members' money, which is no business of theirs, we can be critical from a different perspective, that workers' money is becoming an integral part of the very system which exploits workers in the first place, that workers become employers and exploiters of other workers and often of themselves. Recently, we mentioned the dispute at the New South Wales power distributor Ausgrid, with the United Services Union and Electrical Trades Union now placing an expensive full-page ad in the financial media, pointing out Ausgrid has sacked, or sorry, has sadly had to let go, more than 2,000 workers, wants to impose a wage freeze and slash rights and conditions, and typically is not negotiating seriously. Typically. Typical capitalist caring employer. Except the major shareholders are Australian Super and IFM, which represents more than 20 super funds. And this week, three cheers for the construction industry's CBUS, one of the biggest top-end real estate developers in the country, for standing up to its lazy, avaricious workers by planning to take many of them off the EBA and telling them any more super contribution increases would be absorbed by lowering their pay. And brickbats, brickbats, brickbats to the Finance Service Union for daring to threaten to take CBUS to the fair work True Blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like a con mission. And even more cheers for CBUS as caring employers gloatingly point out the inconsistency that evil unions and super funds have argued caring employers can absorb super increases but here is a super fund caring employer smashing that argument, providing ammunition for all caring employers. And worse, how dare the Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land branch of the evil CFWMEU urge it mem its members to ditch CBUS and describe the fund's actions as cynical corporate hypocrisy at its very worst when CBUS is just doing what good caring employers do, and in this case, doing its best for workers by exploiting workers. In fact, rather than hold inquiries to wrest all that lovely, lovely money from industrial funds and hand it to the sub-performing big investment and banking sector, a smart government should be encouraging more of this to get super funds into the spirit of being caring employers and turn more workers indirectly into caring employers. OK, OK, that's a big ask, given there's all that lovely, lovely money to get their super-efficient private sector hands-on, or grammatically on which to get, but let's not get carried away with that. On a related matter, caring employers are screaming out for immigration levels to be increased as True Blue Aussie opens up because coronavirus is running riot to fill thousands of jobs they tell us they can't fill. Capitalist Trade Minister Dan T and Biscuits, for instance, returning from Europe, where incidentally the French still gave him the cold shoulder, thanks to Scummo's mature diplomatic skills, but, but I'd avert. Returning to tell us British workers could help fill the gap. And big economic guru Josh Friday Iceberg saying the hiatus in immigration is damaging the economy. And Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Alex Hack the Desperates, said we would facilitate importing industrial cannon fodder. I'm pretty sure he didn't use those words, didn't quite put it that way. But 
And I thought, hang on, if we need workers at a number of skills they tell us we're short on, then there's all these people we've locked up for about a decade who are effectively facing life imprisonment with a heinous crime of fleeing persecution and hardship. In many cases, the result of true blue Aussie trained killers invading their country and who would doubtless help solve the shortage in skills problem. That would seem to make common sense, logical. These people are already here or hereabouts, except we're not dealing with common sense or logic. No, no, better to suffer a worker and skills shortage than show the slightest compassion for a willing and available force who are evil, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Suffer a shortage and let them suffer. Let them rot on. Although there may be some hope on the horizon for these criminals who made the big, big mistake of thinking True Blue Aussie might care just a little bit for those seeking refuge. Well, they've learnt and are learning their lesson, but some hope. From the Minister for Stuffing Up Vaccinations and Quarantine, Greg Haunt the Sick, who, responding to a threat of violence against a politician, warned... For those who think violence or the threat of violence is okay in this country, it is not. So that should have made the asylum seekers feel better, given them a ray of hope. Violence is not okay in True Blue Aussie. Greg probably should have qualified, it is not, unless you were no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat person. Finally, where satire fails. This item that True Blue Aussie intervened, attempting to water down the latest intergovernmental report on climate change, if there is, urging it not to call for a ban on fossils. The Minister for Fossils, Owen oh, Emissions Reduction, Angus, said the report was totally false, misleading and utterly ridiculous, and then said, it's normal, everyone does it. Listener, how can satire compete with that? Good afternoon. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading. 
and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Today our country focus is Mexico. Its written history spans more than three millennia and saw the rise and fall of complex indigenous civilizations. Mexico would later develop into a unique multicultural society. Sasha Gillies Lakakis, journalist, student and broadcaster, looks at what today is the third largest country in Latin America after Brazil and Argentina. And I think, Sasha, that's a starting point. Mexico, prior to the mid-19th century, was a much larger country, and I'm referring to the first war between US and Mexico. Why did it happen and what were the consequences? This is really a pivotal moment, not only in the history of Mexico, but particularly for the, the evolving relationship between the United States and Mexico, which has become really emblematic of a lot of things, you know, the relationship between the United States and Latin America, the United States and poorer countries more generally. But essentially, what we need to do is go back just a couple of more years, just to get an idea of how chaotic Mexico was after independence. So Mexico fully expels the Spanish uh, in 1821. And pretty much up until 1846, when that US-Mexican war begins, you have almost 50 governments within that space of, of not even 30 years. So all of them come to power through military coups or insurrections, which is just, you know, it's, it's total chaos. In 1836, you have the secession of Texas, which belonged to Mexico. And essentially the Anglo-American settlers who had come to Texas, they were allowed to, they were allowed to settle land um, under Mexican law. They lead an insurrection against the Mexican government, supported by the United States, and they manage to create their own independent country. So they take all of what is today Texas, and they say this is now the Republic of Texas. And only a few years later, that is actually absorbed into the United States. So clearly the meddling had already begun. And by 1846, Mexico still has a lot of unresolved border disputes with Texas. They said that, you know, this was an illegitimate seizure of territory and an illegitimate seizure of power from the Mexican government by the Anglo-American settlers in Texas. And for several decades, there was actually no consensus over who actually owned large parts of Texas. Mexico still claimed vast parts of it. And so what we have in 1846 is the United States government decides to deliberately send US soldiers into this disputed territory, knowing full well that the Mexican government has given its army the authority to shoot people, to particularly foreign soldiers, if they enter this territory. And that's exactly what happens. These US soldiers are intercepted by the Mexican army and they are killed. And the US uses this as a pretext to declare war against Mexico. Now, the reason why is that the U.S. had its sights set on more than just Texas. Of course, at this time, Mexico also controlled California, Arizona, New Mexico, this vast swathe of territory that almost constitutes almost a third of what the U.S. is today 
that's what Mexico had, but the United States wanted it all. And so they declare war using this vague sort of border dispute as an excuse. And of course, the US Army at this time is far better equipped, far more disciplined as compared to the Mexican Army, which is still squabbling amongst itself. There are still internal disputes within Mexico over who's going to run the country. And what we have is a pretty brief war, only two years, 1846 to 1848, and the Mexicans are defeated resoundingly across all the three major fronts. So there was a front in California where the US Army invaded uh, the northern part of California and swept down to, to take the whole state. And then there was a direct attack on Mexico City. The US cavalry went directly down to Mexico City and essentially besieged Mexico's most populous settlement uh, for those two years. It was absolutely horrific what happened to the Mexicans in, in the capital. And then also the port city of Veracruz, which sits on the Caribbean coast of Mexico or a little bit further north. Uh, and that was bombarded by the US Navy. The Mexican military didn't stand a chance given all of the internal disarray, the fact that they were still recovering from their own anti-colonial war against Spain. It was a really opportunistic move by the United States and Mexico is forced into negotiations or it it ends up going to the United States pleading for negotiations, which the U.S. accepts. The U.S. takes California, New Mexico, Arizona, what is remaining of Texas, and a good part of Oklahoma as well. That all belonged to Mexico. The United States seized it, and they decided so that they would look like some sort of good Samaritan, that they would reimburse Mexico $15 million, which back then and even today is not that much considering that Mexico lost over a third of its territory over those two years. So particularly California, which was absolutely bountiful in terms of resources, in terms of crops and harvests, it was totally prosperous and it was all just ripped out from under Mexico's feet in less than two years. This sets the precedent for how the United States will treat Mexico uh, right up to the modern day. And what we have, you know, as, as a further insult to injury, just a few years later in 1854, so that's about, you know, less than a decade after this war's concluded, Mexico retains a tiny sliver of, the, of um, Southern California called the Gadsden Strip. The United States decides that they want to take that as well, chiefly because it provides a really, really efficient and danger-free corridor for the transport of goods. So it, it bypasses a lot of the inhospitable terrain, the desert terrain, in Southern California, and it allows for trains and horse and carriages and all these sorts of new sort of modes of transport and commerce to pass really easily, um, not only between Mexico and the US, but between parts of the Southern United States. And they threatened the Mexican government with another war. They say, if you don't give us the Gadsden Strip, we will invade and take it for ourselves. And of course, what's Mexico going to do? They've just lost it a war against the United States. It was humiliating. They're clearly not going to be able to win if the US decides to attack again. They give it over. This essentially sets off a chain of events that leads to what is called the Ayutla Uprising. Just a year later in 1855, where the government of Santa Ana, now he had been in charge for several decades by this point, he's overthrown. You know, he presided over all of these disasters for Mexico, including the Mexican-American War, the Texas War, he even caused trouble with the Comanche Native American tribes in the north, um, and they began attacking Mexican supply routes. So he's overthrown. And what we have for the next 20 years is a tussle between two competing visions for what Mexico should be or how Mexico should develop. And that's essentially divided into the liberals 
which essentially in the Mexican context, it's not, it doesn't mean liberals in Australia or America, for example. The liberals in Mexico essentially want the country to develop along the lines of the United States. So they want Mexico to become a modern capitalist country. But with all of these ideas of you know, free expression, democratic vote within a two-party system, that sort of thing. And then we have the conservatives that essentially want Mexico to run along the lines of the old Spanish empire. You know, they want the Catholic Church to have a predominant position. They want the old families to keep on running the vast majority of the economy, particularly the cash crops in the south, but more importantly, the mineral deposits that are being discovered in northern Mexico. They're against the sort of open market advocated by the more modern liberals. They sort of want the economy in Mexico to be controlled by these families, by this elite. They don't want to open it up to too many foreign sort of intrusions. They would rather keep it all within the control of a select few families. You know, there's little leeway. There's not really a progressive uh, alternative amidst these two factions. And they essentially jostle for power for the next 20 years. The Liberals tend to come out on top most of the time. There are periods of conservative rule. But the Liberals, you know, even among the everyday populace, even though they're not sort of a popular movement or a, or a sort of grassroots party, they are more progressive if you compare them to the Conservatives. So they do tend to get a bit more support. And we have the emergence of someone who's been termed Mexico's most popular leader ever, um, and his name was Benito Juarez. Now, he was part Indigenous. He belonged to the Liberals, uh, but he was a lot more progressive. In fact, he oftentimes was at odds with his own compatriots in the Liberal movement. And what he does is he institutes a series of reforms. His political project is called La Gran Reforma, the Great Reform. So he tries to turn Mexico into a secular society throughout the, 18, the early 1860s. He imposes very harsh restrictions on the Catholic Church. Uh, he makes education and healthcare the sole purview of the Mexican government. So he expels chiefly the, the Catholic Church, which was involved in those two sectors, but also some of the private sector actors, uh, I guess you could call them private sector back then, that were involved in healthcare and education. And perhaps most importantly, he says that Mexico isn't going to pay back its foreign debt. He says that it was illegitimately accrued. A lot of it was a holdover from the Spanish Empire. So Mexico was being forced to pay back debt that Spain had accrued from the United States and from other European countries. And Benito Juarez says, enough's enough. We need to make a, a clean break with this. Uh, and Mexico shouldn't be forced to pay all of these uh, unreasonable debts that were forced upon the country when it was in a weaker situation. Now, what this does, it obviously elicits a really furious response from the United States, from Europe, but from France particularly, because France had lent millions and millions of dollars to Spain, particularly during the independence struggle to prop up the government in the hopes that they would be able to crush the Mexican independence movement. But of course, that didn't happen. So what France does when it hears that Benito Juarez isn't going to pay back the debts that are owed to France is that they invade Mexico. And this is a little known period of Mexico's history, but it's pretty significant. So Mexico is invaded by France. They manage to overthrow Benito Juarez and they impose Maximilian, who was actually an Austrian archduke, um, related to the French, the French lineage of, of leadership. And he becomes Emperor Maximilian of Mexico up until 1867. So that's a period of six years where the French essentially control Mexico and they attempt to essentially extract the resources as quickly as possible so that they can get back 
the monetary value of the debt that they're owed. Um, and of course, they know that their rule isn't going to last very long. Essentially, a second independence war ensues. And in just six years, this French emperor, this invader, is overthrown and Benito Juarez returns to power. And he continues with his program. The liberals dominate pretty much the rest of the political scene in Mexico up until 1876. So Benito Juarez has given up power and his successors, who are also liberals, are more or less continuing with his more progressive sort of program. And what happens is a little-known general who did belong to this liberal movement, but really he acted a lot more like a conservative, and his name is Porfirio Diaz, of course, um, who's well-known, he overthrows the liberal government in a coup d'etat. So he rallies the military to his side, and he overthrows the liberal government and he establishes what is known as the Porfiriato, or the Diaz, Porfirio Diaz-era dictatorship, which lasts from 1876 right up until 1910, 1911, just under 30 years of, of rule by this single man. And what he does is he repeals the more progressive legislation, particularly the anti-clerical legislation. So he restores the power of the Catholic Church to get them on his side. He greatly enhances the power of the military. He establishes his own special police force, which are called Los Rurales, or the Rural Police, which are specifically assigned task, the task of persecuting uh, union activists and indigenous activists, which are predominantly to be found in the countryside, in the rural areas of Mexico, hence the name of this police force. And he opens up the economy to all sorts of foreign investment, particularly US foreign investment, but also British foreign investment becomes quite important. And essentially what we have is this sort of kleptocracy emerges where Porfirio Diaz and his sort of elite of generals, together with the US and the UK corporations, basically own everything in Mexico by the time of, the, of 1910, 1911. And just to give you an, an idea of how dire the situation is for everyday Mexicans, because, you know, it's often portrayed that Porfirio Diaz modernised Mexico or industrialised Mexico, which is true. He did industrialise the country, chiefly so that US corporations could benefit. But as for the living conditions of everyday Mexicans, the average life expectancy at birth during his reign was 25 years. Incredibly low life expectancy. And look, I mean, that life expectancy was also prevalent in many other parts of the world at this time. But um, particularly for, for such a large and wealthy country, potentially wealthy country, it really did speak to how far many Mexicans were left behind. And also the average uh, infant mortality rate was 22%. So almost one in four babies were dying at birth which spoke to the, the terrible conditions in hospitals. And in fact, you know, many, many towns and many poorer neighbourhoods didn't even have a hospital or even the most basic sort of medical care. But of course, Porfirio Diaz, he was a really, really strong-handed autocrat. He didn't tolerate any sort of dissent. If, if you did speak out against him, you were killed, quite simply. You know, he, he ran the country as a military dictatorship, which is exactly what the US government wanted. And in fact, bit by bit, the archives from that period are getting studied and it is becoming clearer and clearer that the US government was in very intimate discussions with Porfirio Diaz just before he overthrew the Liberal government. So, you know, and again, this brings us back to the fact that the United States is always meddling. It's always interfering in Mexico's internal affairs, particularly because it's such a bountiful, resource-rich territory. Of course, the US is going to be wary of any government that would try to assert Mexico's right to control these resources and use them for the good of the people, like Benito Juarez was. 
during those terrible years for the, the people of Mexico, was there a, a left movement brewing? Well, yeah, there was. And this is the thing. So it, it might not have looked like it. In fact, it, you know, to any visitor to Mexico in those times, you wouldn't know that there was a left movement unless you went out to two regions in particular. So first of all, the northern regions of Mexico, which share their border with the United States, and the southern regions are so right in the southern extreme of Mexico on the border of Central America. And now the reason for this is that in different ways, these two areas were the most exploited parts of Mexico. So in the case of the north, essentially everything had come under the control of US corporations. Porfirio Diaz had deliberately watered down, diluted labor laws, wage laws, all these sorts of things to incentivize foreign investment in the northern regions, which are incredibly mineral rich. And uh, US corporations uh, had a field day there. They made an immense profit off Mexican resources, uh, particularly Mexican mineral resources, and they took advantage of these really, really lax labour laws to mistreat and abuse their workforce. That's something that has persisted to this day. The northern border region is really a sort of area shrouded in sort of unaccountably deregulation, secrecy, and that began all the way back during the Diaz era. As for the south, you have a large indigenous population. The vast majority of people in southern Mexico have some sort of indigenous heritage. Their regions have been just totally abandoned during the Diaz era. There's no development to speak of, no sort of economic projects. Most US and UK companies don't even go there because the, the Mexican government has just left it to rot, essentially. There's no new investment in education or healthcare, and there's systemic you know, violations of indigenous rights by the police, by the military, that have been going on for hundreds of years, you know, that it happened under the Spanish and it continues under the Porfiriato dictatorship. Um, and essentially, because of that, in the south and in the, in the north, they become these sorts of, like, locuses of revolutionary activity. We, we see this develop particularly uh, after the turn of the centuries. In the north, we have an iconic figure who's going to become really significant in the Mexican Revolution, Pancho Villa, and he is considered a bandit by the Mexican government. So he runs a group of high women, I guess you could call them, that essentially raided US and Mexican corporate projects and trains and carriages that were carrying the resources. And they would essentially, it was a sort of a Robin Hood-esque scenario, if you want to use that cliche, where Pancho Villa would essentially steal from the rich to give to the poor, to give to his community. And there were large parts of the northern states that were essentially run by Pancho Villa's gang, by Pancho Villa's organisations, but they didn't mistreat the everyday Mexican. That's what we need to make clear, that he was very popular. And that's why large parts of the northern states weren't governable by the Mexican state, because the Mexican people were so happy with the way that Pancho Villa was sort of standing up to the Mexican government and standing up to their US financiers uh, and actually taking their resources and redistributing them to the poorer northern regions. And in the south, we have Emiliano Zapata in the southern state of Morelos. Uh, he's part indigenous himself, and he is a peasant activist, and he organises a peasant movement uh, that becomes very, very strong in the southern states, particularly Morelos, but also Chiapas, which is where the Zapatista movement is today, um, and Tobasco as well, which are all in the south. And his key, uh, I guess, project is land reform. That's the major issue for Emiliano Zapata, and it also becomes a major issue for the northern states as well, that they want the peasants to receive their fair share of land. They want caps to be placed on how much land can be owned by an individual landlord. And they want 
the territorial integrity of Mexico to be respected. And what they mean by that is that they do not want foreign governments or foreign corporations to have the right to permanently own Mexican land. So they want to be able to potentially lease it to foreigners, but never to have it actually owned by a foreign entity. This becomes one of the key gripes of both of these movements, and it all comes to a head in 1910, which is recognised as the beginning of the Mexican Revolution. Up until this point, Porfirio Diaz has been in charge. He's held a number of fraudulent elections. Uh, in most of them, he's the only candidate because he doesn't permit opposition. But by this point, as I said, that there's these two revolutionary movements and also a resurgence in the liberal movement. So this, this earlier liberal movement, nowhere near as progressive as it was under Benito Juarez, but they're against this sort of repression um, and this sort of autocracy that Porfirio Diaz has created in Mexico. It all comes to a head because Diaz at first says he's not going to run in 1910. He says he's had his time, he's ruled for almost three decades, and that's going to be the end of it. But then he changes his mind and he says, no, actually, I will run in 1910 because no one else knows how to govern Mexico. Uh, I've run it for the past three decades and I know best how the country should be run. And this leads to an explosion of activity. So the two revolutionary movements mobilise really in a major sense for the first time. They begin attacking directly uh, the Mexican military and the Mexican police force uh, in the north and in the south. And of course, there's a number of other movements throughout the other Mexican states, but those two regions, the north and the south, are the real hotbeds of activity. And in Mexico City, the liberals sort of take charge. And they actually field a candidate for the election, Francisco Madero, who wants to end the Porfirio Diaz era. Madero is by no means a progressive man. He's one of Mexico's richest businessmen. He's an oligarch. But he wants to turn Mexico, as we said, into this sort of modern US-style capitalist country. He doesn't want it to be this kleptocracy where Porfirio Diaz is the only man who says what goes. So he puts his, his hand in, his sort of hat in the ring. He sort of manages to unify the liberals, the northern revolutionaries and the southern revolutionaries, and they all agree to support Francisco Madero's presidency. Of course, what does Porfirio Diaz do? He jails Francisco Madero the same year of the election, and he declares himself the victor of the electoral season. This just leads to total anarchy in Mexico. Porfirio Diaz's, even his high-ranking uh, allies, are directly attacked. There's a number of assassinations. And the, the situation gets so dire and so uncontrollable, not even the military is able to actually keep these movements in check, that Porfirio Diaz resigns in 1911, less than a year, in fact, just a few months, after he supposedly wins the election, and he flees into exile, and he dies only a few years later in 1915 in France. And so what happens is these, this new revolutionary movement, this sort of amalgamation, this coalition, holds new elections in 1911, and Francisco Madero wins, which, which would have happened in 1910 anyway, if Diaz hadn't rigged the elections. But, of course, you know, you'd think that they would have a brief sort of moment to sort of begin developing trajectory for the nation. What is the Mexican Revolution going to be? That, of course, doesn't happen. And just two years later, not even two years later, at the start of 1913, we have a coup that overthrows Francisco Madero. 
It's undertaken by Victoriano Huerta, who was a Diaz-era general, so close ally of uh, Porfirio Diaz. He overthrows the new government and he establishes a military regime and says he wants to restore the Porfiriato. He wants to repeal what little progressive legislation has been enacted in those in that year and a bit, essentially restore what was the Porfirio Diaz era dictatorship. And this leads to another civil war. The liberals, which are led this time around by a man called Venustiano Carranza, or just Carranza, they're also from the north with Pancho Villa. And so they, together with Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata, they launch a war against this coup government. And the United States opts to back the coup government. And this is really critical because we now know that the US ambassador and the US State Department were directly in communications with Victoriano Huerta and organised the coup d'etat. They were directly conspiring to overthrow the Mexican revolutionary government and to overthrow Francisco Madero to try and reverse their fortunes and make sure that their commercial interests remained intact. And again, this is a blatant, blatant example of US interventionism in Mexico. And they start funding and supporting the Huerta regime. They support the coup government. But it becomes pretty clear by the end of 1914, again, all of this is a very rapid sort of series of events that the revolutionaries are going to win. In the North and in the South, they lose control. Uh, the coup regime loses control. The US decides to take some pretty drastic action that ends up backfiring. So they send 12,000 soldiers into Mexico to try and put down the revolution permanently. And they also send the US Navy to besiege Veracruz, which is what they did in the first US-Mexican war. That's the same city that got besieged. The US is hoping that this will scare the revolutionaries, that it will be enough to sort of put them down for good. But it does the opposite. The fact that there's a foreign military force invading their country again, and most of all that it's the United States, which has already humiliated Mexico, all this does is it just serves to unite the Mexican revolutionary forces, and they end up fighting with even more fervour against the coup regime and against the United States. And what ends up happening in late 1914 is that they win. They overthrow Victoriano Huerta. He ends up being killed by the revolutionaries and the US forces are defeated too. They're, it's a pretty humiliating defeat for the United States and they have to withdraw all of their forces. You know, in 1914, that phase of the Mexican Revolution has come to an end, but it's not the last phase. Um, and there's more chaos to come, unfortunately, because now that the revolutionaries are finally in charge of the country, this is where there's the really nitty-gritty sort of discussion of, well, what is the Mexican Revolution going to be? And there's very serious disagreements over this. And we'll hear more from Sasha Galiz-Lakakis in the program next week. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwanzmizlo. Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Yeah.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. We look once again at the case of the kidnapped Venezuelan diplomat Alex Sam. I spoke at the weekend with Joe Montero of the Australia Venezuela Support Group about a disturbing development. He was extradited from Gabo Verde, just off Africa to the United States, ended up in Florida, fronted a Florida court this Monday. And the charge? And he's been, yes, with uh, money laundering. That's a different charge to the original one. was the original one, and then they tried to, they were sort of hedging around some other stuff because there were some questions. Now, this relates to an investigation that was pushed about two years ago in Switzerland. And there was a claim that he'd set up illegal bank or set up bank accounts to transfer money undercover. The Swiss authorities began an investigation soon closer on the grounds that there was no evidence. That's what they're using by the looks of things at the moment. Uh, the money laundering accusation relates to uh, to funds used uh, to buy food for the CLAP program in Venezuela. This is a government program that guarantees deliveries of food parcels to every household, regular deliveries. It's what keeps people from going hungry. The position from Washington is that the government uses that in order to pressure people to support it and it also that it discriminates. I actually witnessed how it operates when I was in Caracas, actually the first time I was in Caracas, uh, because I, I was staying in a household and I went with the people there to the collection point and found that it was... The deliveries are managed by local committees uh, yeah, of one or two streets, and it's the people who live there distributed amongst themselves. Yeah, it's not distributed by officials as such, but there is a central point where the supplies are taken and each household comes and their neighbours organise it and they hand out a box uh, according to the number of people in the household. And there's a reason why people need those boxes, isn't there? Well, there is. There's two reasons. One is the sanctions put created a major shortage of basic staples uh, that are fundamental to food there, which, uh, for example, cooking oil and corn flour. There are other things as well, but they're, they're two examples. So it's the shortage of them, but also the supermarkets, when the shortage came in, bumped up the price astronomically and put them out of reach of a lot of people. 
So the CLAP program has had two effects. It's actually provided essentials, but it's also forced the supermarkets to lower their prices again. Alex Saab is actually a diplomat for the Venezuelan government, but the United States still feels that they can extradite him. Can you explain again how that happens? Yes. Well, they say because they do not recognise the government in Venezuela, they do not recognise diplomats the government appoints, which is nonsense because in reality, the United States administration has to deal with ambassadors and the embassies that are appointed by the government of Venezuela because if they need to do business that, you know, the kind of business that normally is carried out in embassies, they can't go anywhere else. They can't go to Juan Guaido, who they recognise, because he, he has no infrastructure. There is nowhere to go. So it really doesn't work in practice, but politically they insist on it, and they insist that because of that, ambassadors and, and, you know, and other staff and embassies representing the government of Venezuela do not have diplomatic status and therefore do not have immunity from arrest. But even then, his was not a, an arrest. It was an abduction. And I think that needs to be stated clearly. It happened when the plane he was flying in stopped for refueling in Cabo Verde in June last year. He was dragged out of the plane. The government of this small island state had been pressured. They're very dependent on financial support from the United States. And that continues... It was not an arrest. It was a kidnapping. Uh, you know, that's starting to be more and more, more widely recognised. Even the European now this week has said they're concerned about the implications of what happened. They haven't come out directly and attacked the United States, but they have said they're concerned. Uh, the United Nations uh, is taking the General Assembly a bit more strongly. A number of countries have condemned it. I think we'll see a few more... Uh, coming in the next week or two when the actual case really gets underway. Will he be able to get a lawyer of his choice? He does have a legal team of his choice, yes. The point is, uh, how will the legal system there treat the case? Uh, yeah, a number of uh, organisations around the world have, have stepped up. They're linking up. And quite interestingly, I think importantly too, they're linking up with the case of Julian Assange, who they want to do the same thing to. And parallels have been drawn. So we're at the beginning of an international campaign that uh, will highlight the two people. What's been the reaction by the Venezuelan government to his appearance in the court? Oh, it's, it's been strong. Of course, they've condemned it all the way along. Uh, they've pulled out of the negotiation. There have been negotiations going on in Mexico, broken by Norway, but held in Mexico uh, with the opposition, including the group around Juan Guaido. Uh, Juan Guaido's praised the, the kidnapping. The Venezuelan government has pulled out of those negotiations for now. So that, that's a, quite a strong reaction. Has there been any support in the US for Alex Saab? Uh, there has been. There's a number of organisations uh, have been uh, are organising activities and petitions. 
One that comes to mind uh, is Code Pink, women's organisation. They're fairly well known around the place. Uh, there was a rally within hours of the court case of his arrival, I should say, in the United States, in New York, in Times Square, but that's only the beginning. That was called in very short notice, and that signalled a campaign you know, that, that's in the beginnings of developing. And then, of course, there's the concern about his health. Yes. Uh, Alex Saab is suffering from cancer, and since his abduction more than a year ago, he has been denied cancer medication. He's not too well. What's being done here by the supporters of Venezuela? In, in Australia at the moment, uh, the uh, Venezuela Solidarity Campaign is actually planning a rally, uh, tentatively at this stage, on next Friday, 5pm, uh, in Melbourne at the front of Flinders Street Station. So we're actually going to raise uh, the situation for both Alex Saab and Julian Assange because it, there is a, a big parallel between the two. So that will be important. Uh, we are currently waiting to confirm that next day or so because we want to get onto the latest developments. The information just come through that... Uh, Alex Saab's court case will resume. It was, the date that's been set is the 1st of November, so that's pretty close. Julian Assange's case will also resume, I believe, in the same week. My recollection is the, around the 4th of November. Uh, so the two of them will be more or less held together. One in the United States, uh, in Florida, and the other one in London, which relates to, to the appeal... Uh, to extradite him from there, from London. So that that's really coming to it. Both are coming to a head. Do you see any connection between what's happened to Alex in the last little while and the upcoming elections? I certainly do, and a lot of people are seeing that. Part of the problem the United States has is that what it's shaping up is that Juan Guaido's people are not going to do too well. Uh, they don't have much support. They never had a great deal of support inside Venezuela. But a large, yeah, many of the op opposition groups had already come into the process and they've been dragged into the process. And there's a way, I, I believe that it's a part of the plans to set up a scenario to actually negate the result of the election. But it's also, I think, a reflection of there's a bit of panic in Washington because they have not been really doing too well. They expected the Maduro government to fall two or three years ago. It's gaining strength. Internationally, the United States is losing the support because they had 50 countries recognise Juan Guaido in the first place and they've been dropping off. There are not many countries now that are supporting him. Even the European unions had to pull away from that. It is from a position of weakness, I think, that they're actually desperate to find a way to regain the initiative. You can say that uh, with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks as well. And one, the connection between Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in Venezuela that 
a lot of the corruption, the, 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 the coup plots of the past were exposed by WikiLeaks. And so WikiLeaks and Julian Assange are very well known in Venezuela. Finally, Joe, it just shows that it doesn't really matter what colour the president in the United States. Things stay the same. Yes, and there has been, and a lot of people are, even a lot of uh, the supporters of the Democrats in the United States are very disappointed. They're very disappointed because Joe Biden promised a new era in international relations, and if anything, they're saying it's worse than it was under Donald Trump. Again, I think it's a problem that they do have. Washington's got a problem because... There's a desperation to remain the number one power globally, uh, you know, the police force of the world, and actually determine generally the direction of every country. The problem they've got, that not every country is agreeing with that. They're going their own way. And whether, as an individual, you like the direction of a particular country, there's a principle involved in that, it is ultimately the decision of the people who live in that country, the citizens of that country, to determine their own future. The United States finds it more difficult to enforce this than it did even a decade ago. All right, Joe, well, we'll keep in touch and see how things go in the next little while. And that was Joe Montero from the Venezuela Support Group here in Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Health for Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. Possum Portraits is a non-profit bereavement care service supporting parents who have lost a baby to miscarriage, stillbirth and neonatal death. We provide families with hand-drawn, commemorative keepsake portraits of their baby free of charge. In support of our mission, we are hosting a community fundraising raffle. The prize draw will be held on November 6th. Prizes include a $300 Gorman online shop voucher, hampers, term memberships for kids' music and activity classes, and much more. To buy your raffle tickets, head to possumportraits.com.au forward slash events and win some great prizes while supporting an important cause. Possum Portraits is a 3CR supporter. Often on the program I have a country profile, including today with Mexico but also today a local, the inner northern suburb of Brunswick. 
and the group responsible is the Brunswick Residents Network. And the topic for discussion, their survey, the 2021 Brunswick Walking Survey, how to make Brunswick safer and more enjoyable. And today I'm speaking with one of those Brunswick residents, Nancy Atkin, and my first question to Nancy was, this is not the first survey you've conducted in Brunswick since the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020. Is that correct? No, and it's not the first survey on traffic we've done either. We did a couple of smaller but more kind of, I guess, intense, more local Brunswick, Brunswick East surveys on traffic in 2011-2014. Then we did a big survey about people's experiences of living life with COVID in April last year. I think that was when we thought that we were kind of get, getting out of lockdown and everything was going to be smooth sailing. So it was people looking back on, on the first lockdown. What was the starting point for this latest one? What was the impetus? So, two years ago, we had a public meeting about walking. Out of that, we realised that walking is something everyone walks almost. Walking is good for people's health and it's also good for the environment and it's good to have people walking places rather than driving as far as uh, traffic management goes. So there's all those reasons that walk is good for you, but it is very much ignored. Like the council didn't even have a separate line for walking infrastructure. As the cyclists will tell you, if, if a shared path was to be kind of upgraded Berry Creek or whatever, the money would be taken out of the bike budget because it wasn't a walking budget in Moreland. So it's, been, it's very much overlooked. We set up a walking, working group, which has been doing a whole lot of things, lobbying about particular difficulties, lobbying the council about more crossings, etc. And we decided that we'd do a survey of Brunswick it ended up being a really big survey. It was big in the number of questions we asked, which was because the questions were organised by a committee and we weren't ruthless enough in culling them. That's the bad news. So that, so it took us three months to analyse all the open-ended questions. The good news coming out of that is that we have a huge amount of information and also because our working, working group walked all over Brunswick leafleting almost every house in Brunswick West, Central Brunswick and Brunswick East, we had 922 responses and we also publicised it through email. We publicised it by having a flyer with a QR code which we gave to people as they're getting on the tram to go to work, which was really productive. We'd kind of go, why don't you fill this out while you're on the tram? And people go, oh yes, and we got lots of responses from that. So we had 922 responses, in fact 900. 23, but one of them was obscene, so we deleted it. <laughs> and <laughs> it's made it a really valuable report. What were people wanting? The first big want, which isn't necessarily the one that would pop into your head when you think what the people want for walking, is that they want more trees for shade and uh, in particular, but also because they want nice places to walk to and they want parks with trees and greenery. But more shady trees was a really big ask and it's just clearly related to the fact that the summers are very hot. The survey went out in the hot part of the year, so maybe it was more at the front of people's mind in particular because of that. But we did also get a similar response from our traffic survey in 2014, but it was very much highlighted in this and it gives us a chance, I think, to say to the council, look, you just have to put 
more money again into trees and parks. And also councils making sure that footpaths aren't going to trip people up and end up with broken legs and broken hips. Yes. So there are three things about the footpaths. And in Brunswick, Moreland's a very big municipality. It goes all the way out to Glenroy and, and Faulkner. Those areas have probably got better quality footpaths overall. Brunswick got, has got little narrow streets and often very narrow or minimal footpaths and they're in very bad condition. I think this is where our survey would differ from a survey maybe taken in, in different parts of Melbourne. The people in Victoria Walk said at our launch that it's, it's a bit typical of old inner areas. In particular, as you said, the footpaths, footpaths being even was a big ask, but also people often want wider footpaths. Uh, they don't want obstruction on the footpaths. They hate on Sydney Road where people put, you know, cafe furniture and, um, and, and things that they're selling out on the footpaths. And also people do not like uh, where there's a shared path for cyclists. That's also a big message to, to planners and councillors that, you know, in future, and as residents successfully lobbied for in the Coburg and Moreland level crossing removal, you need to separate pedestrians and cyclists. When did they first start to have shared paths and what was the reason for it? I don't know when it first started, but the, the main ones around here, the three, one is the upfield shared path for bikes and pedestrians running alongside the railway line. That's obviously a question mainly of space. Most of the way up until you get to where the new, to where the sky rail's been put in and there's more space, there is not enough space there to make two paths along most of that route. The other places is along the old inner urban railway line, the, the linear park along there, along Park Street, and the one along the Mary Creek. Now, they've also got kind of, I guess you'd kind of think, well, why should we concrete any more than we have to? But I think what they've found with those paths is that they get more and more popular. The, uh, they've had to widen the original path along the Mary Creek at, at various stages. It is a bit constricted some, in some places by the geography, but it's also just people not realising that it just doesn't work. I heard someone talk about how you how you organise that kind of infrastructure, and they say, you basically do it by speed. Okay, so everyone who's really slow has a footpath to go on, so people walking and maybe kids, you know, small children. Then you have a sort of 15k an hour, roughly, speed path where you put the cyclists and the, the skateboards and, you know, maybe the e-scooters, and then you have the road where the fast traffic goes the car bit of the road and that, that's the kind of logic of it it's never going to work to have vehicles like bikes that are going maybe 50 or 20k and people who are walking and along the creek path often just walking quite slowly who are going maybe you know five or eight k an hour it's always going to end in tears just doesn't mix and there are probably in our survey although there were some complaints about dogs cyclists on those recreational walks were much more of a concern to people walking. They didn't necessarily hate the cyclists. So they just said, oh, couldn't they ring their bell? And it's alarming when they suddenly appear and you don't know they're coming. Did you notice a difference in people 
what they wanted or what they needed depending on their age. Yes, and actually we had a meeting yesterday where we presented these results to the council staff and we said we, we should, you know, maybe... Um, because we asked people to identify what age group they fell into, there's quite a bit of information there about things that people are concerned about according to their age. Old people don't like people riding on footpaths, older people, and they're more likely to ask for amenities like water or seats along the way that's more important to, to older age groups. That may be related partly just to, to different walking patterns among the age groups. So the older age groups walk mainly during the day. A lot more young people walk at night. And there's another big demographic about people who walk at night, which is that men are much more likely to walk at night than women. 43% of males walk after dark and only 25% of females. So that's a pretty sort of shocking demonstration of the way that the threat of violence is affecting what people what people do. However, with regard to age, older people um, are less likely to walk after dark also, and so they're less concerned about having stuff like good lighting. Younger people walk a lot after dark. That doesn't mean that they're not scared. They also want, you know, better lighting and they would like to feel safer when they're walking. Yeah, so those are some of the, the age differences. Older people are more likely to be sympathetic to the idea of reducing speeds to 30k in residential streets. I'm just wondering if the young people express their concern about walking at night. They've still got memories of a couple of years ago where women actually did die in Brunswick. Yes, yes and there's several cases in Brunswick and also the one just down near, nearby near the... Um, in Princess Park, and those are clearly in people's mind. People's, uh, you know, there's several comments where people say, I avoid these areas because I'm thinking of the death of Julma or whatever. Yeah, they are on people's minds and they do stop them either walking in particular places or w walking in general. And people found walking more important now because of COVID, because of the lockdowns, where if they had a car, well, they couldn't use it anyway. Mm. When the survey was done, except for one, about four or five days, I think, when we went back into lockdown, I think maybe the end of February, the rest of the time people were not in lockdown, and so they were looking back at the lockdown period. Similarly to the survey we did last year about the effects of covid what people seem to be saying is that, yes, they will walk more from now on. Although they had walked more during COVID, but they will continue, many of them will continue to walk more and it will change people's patterns. More walking means people are more connected with their, with their neighbours, with people in the area, which is, well, can't be a bad thing. Yes, and particularly that was uh, that's another thing where there's an there's an age difference when we say why do we walk? The older people, I'm just looking for this. Meeting people was more important to uh, to the people in the over 50s age groups. So, and you can see that in the streets. I mean, my neighbours, some of my neighbours just sort of pop up and walk up and down the road looking for people to talk to. <laughs> I probably do it myself. You know, walking the dog, which is also a big social thing, as you know much more common among the 51 to 70-year-olds than the, the, the 18 to 30-year-old age group.
did you find that more people of a certain age group answered your survey rather than another age group? Mm. Now, let me just look that up. We had a pretty good um, cross-section of people uh, in the age groups from 18 up to 80. Over 80 and under 18, we only had very small numbers. The biggest lot of respondents were from 31 to 50, followed by the um, 51 to 70s. Most people came from those two middle age groups. And were they mainly people who, whose English is their first language? Because you'd have a lot of people in your area where English is not their first language? Yes, and we tried to address that. We actually had our surveys translated and available in other languages, but we were not successful in distrib distributing them because uh, we'd hoped to visit. The translations were in Greek and Italian, which are the most common languages, but really we didn't get to distribute them to those groups. Most of the groups weren't meeting, hadn't yet reconnected. Right at the end of the period, we did make contact with a couple of Italian groups, uh, elderly citizens groups that meet in the hall up the road, and they kind of said, oh, yeah, okay, you know, not really interested, thanks. So we, we, we failed in engaging people to fill in our surveys in those languages, unfortunately. Probably made worse, you know, we did drop them to people. We'd meet people in the street who'd say they'd like to fill in a Greek or Italian survey and we'd give them to them, but we didn't have a mechanism for them to post, to post back free of charge and that was probably a, a gap. Any surprises? The big surprise, I think, apart from the trees being so popular and, as I think I've mentioned, how much people actually walked, the other big surprise was we had an option to answer when we said was the reasons you you walk and the, the people could answer, tick any number of the boxes on that and more than half the people who replied ticked because it's free and that was kind of like quite a surprise and then when we went on and we had other reasons for walking and people could write in the comments box a lot of people a surprising number of people wrote that they didn't have a car that they didn't that they didn't have a license, that they couldn't drive because of a, of a disability, they didn't drive and they walked because they wanted to go and have a drink, a number of reasons like that. And that's led us to argue that council and state government really underestimates how many people don't have access to a car. Even on our council's website, it refers to people having access to a car in terms of how many people on census night said that there was a car at their house. And as you know, that's quite a different thing. I mean, there might be a car at your house, but it might belong to the house member who has it as a work car and is only allowed to drive for work. Or there might be a car at your house that belongs to your housemate, but you don't have any rights to drive it. A lot of services are provided assuming everyone has access and all households have access to a car, you know, if you look up how, where to take your rubbish, if it's a kind of rubbish that can't go in the bin, it'll often tell you to drive to somewhere that's quite a long distance from front, you know, several kilometres away or even in another municipality. It needs a different mindset where services don't assume that you have a car, firstly. Secondly, uh, the council and the state government should inform itself about how many people don't have a car and find out because there's no good statistics about this.
obviously you've collated all the answers. Did you say you've already spoken to council about your results? Yes, we had. Well, there's several good things. One is that we had a, la a public launch and five of our councillors came along, which was fantastic. All three of the councillors from the South Ward, uh, the southern part of Brunswick, all of Brunswick except for the uh, a bit up the north, so they all came along and two, of the, two other members of the council, two other active members. So that was great. And then yesterday we met with, uh, we had a meeting coordinated people by one of the senior people from the council's traffic and transport division, I guess. But we'd said we really wanted to talk to people across the board because one of the issues for councils is getting different departments to talk to each other about, about these issues so that the you know, the open space people know what the people from the division that deals with older people think about providing seats as a priority, for example. So we were very pleased that we had people there from planning from the sort of open space and, and trees division and from the um, people who provide aged care services. So it's great. And we're going to follow up and have further meetings probably with, with some of those about their specific areas of interest. And because we did the survey in SurveyMonkey, so it does provide you with some ability to just go in and get a whole report on that's just the responses of what the people over 50 or 60 or whatever age group have said. Nancy, you mentioned at the beginning that this is not the first survey you've done of Brunswick. Judging by the reaction to the first one, are you confident that there will be a long-term positive result? for all the work that you've done? Uh, the amount of interest in the survey means that we will get some results. But as you know, often, often these issues are a result of uh, whatever analogy you want to use, whether it's sort of, you know, water dripping on stone or the squeaky wheels. We'd, we'd love to make a big noise so a lot of people read our report. In the long term, we hope it'll also drive some long long-term changes, as I said, an attitudinal change about walking. In theory, local government and state government prioritise in the budgets or in the projects uh, that go ahead. With In the planning division, it supports initiatives that are starting to happen. The City of Melbourne recently has decided that ugly buildings <laughs> should not be given permit, that building stuff that is, is ugly should not be allowed. In our survey, we found that people hate walking past ugly buildings. They avoid streets that are full of, like Nicholson Street, that are full of ugly buildings. Yeah, there's implications also about the design of buildings so that people can walk past them comfortably or what's called the jug in terms of permeability, which is if you've got a big building site, you have one or two routes where people can walk through to the streets behind rather than it all being like private land. All those overall policy issues and also just making our local streets just more friendly to people walking or to kids. They need to be greener. They need to be basically narrower. You need a fresh look at what happens to the road space, how much of it is given over to cars and how much of it is given over to, to green space or to footpaths. I remember when you finished the last survey, you mentioned that it's been sent to the archives. Are you hoping this one will also? Thank you for reminding us. We should put that on our, our list also, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's important these things get 
get archived. Uh, on our Brunswick Residence Network WordPress page, we have got our past surveys listed there. But yeah, and it's always interesting to look back because sometimes you don't realise how much you've achieved and things have improved more than you remember. Last words, Nancy? At the launch, as a last word, I picked on a quote where the person actually identified themselves and said, I am from the Brunswick East Entertainment Festival. You might know us from the performing we were doing in lockdown in 2020. I just, you know, intervened with the quote there and say, these five young women dressed in pink lycra went out on their front lawn every day last year during lockdown and did dancing, and it was fantastic. And in the Moreland Awards, which uh, were given out last week by Zoom, they won the prize for the Arts and Culture Award, which was fantastic. And just by serendipity, we'd use the quote from this young woman in our launch. So I'll just go on for a second about what she said. She said, people are attracted to beautiful places. The street felt nice during lockdown. Why? Less noise pollution, less aggressive drivers. It was clear who my neighbours were. Only people from the local area were present on the streets and they came out on the street because it was easier to be on during lockdown. And then we look at the aesthetics, how ugly Nicholson is. We must address the ugliness that unfolds and that ugliness will repel people from engaging in the outside world. And she finishes off by saying, Nicholson Street is losing its soul. It is unattractive and unappealing. Therefore, I don't want to walk on it. I want to walk in beauty. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you so much, Jan. And I was speaking with Nancy Atkin from the Brunswick Residence Network. And do have a look at their survey. This one is the 2021 Brunswick Walking Survey. Sharing concerns about traffic, open space and unsustainable building projects. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Back in 1981, a group of medical professionals got together and the result was the formation of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Forty years later, many of the challenges back then are still with us. 
but the organisation has gone from strength to strength in working for peace. As the current president said, it's a long journey with persistence being one of our greatest tools and it's critical that we remember our successes as well as the ongoing challenges. I spoke last week with that current president, Dr Sue Wareham, and asked her first about the beginnings of the organisation. What were the pressing issues at that time and who were those who brought MAPW into being? Well, the issue then for myself, for MAPW, and for a lot of people around the world was nuclear weapons. And that's the time when there were more deployments going on, particularly in Europe, Western and, and Eastern Europe. There were the cruise and Pershing missiles in Germany and elsewhere. And similarly, the USSR was building up its nuclear arsenal. So that was the the overwhelming issue then, people were rightly, very rightly concerned about the prospects of a nuclear war and the fact that that could be pretty much terminal for much of what we what we know, what we know as civilization. So there were people out in huge numbers on the streets in Europe. 1982, there was the biggest ever, well, to that, that time, and I think still to this time, the biggest ever demonstration in Central Park in New York with about a million people demonstrating for nuclear disarmament. So that was what kicked off MAPW in Australia. I should say there was a, um, again related to the issue of nuclear weapons, there was a an MAPW in Australia earlier on, I think in the 50s and 60s, which was a sort of a branch of MAPW in the UK, but MAPW Australia came into being in 1981 and it was because we knew we needed to get rid of nuclear weapons and we knew that the health message was a really important part in advocating for that. And who were those people back in 1981? A number of people who, most of whom are still with us, although um, getting on in years, so less active, but did brilliant things back in those times. Um, there was Ian Maddox from South Australia, from Adelaide, John Andrews from Melbourne, oh, a number of others, Fred Mendelssohn. Over in Perth was Harry Cohen. Sydney, there was Rick Kefford. And one of the interesting things, and there were, there were others as well, but there's some names that spring to mind. One of the interesting things is that certainly all those people whom I've named, they were all very senior members in the medical profession in their respective specialties. They were all specialists in something or other and all highly regarded in their field of medicine. That was helpful. I mean, that's that's not the way MAPWA portrays itself and, and we're not looking towards the high end of town in the medical world where we're across all health professionals and all members of health professions uh, they're all valued, but it was it was certainly very helpful to have people who were esteemed in their own right for something other than nuclear weapons abolition. It sort of helped to legitimise the message and helped to open doors so that we could get the message out further than we might otherwise have done. I mentioned John Andrews, who who is a Melbourne Melbourne fellow. John Andrews was one of one of the leading figures in nuclear medicine in Australia certainly in Melbourne but also in Australia and that was helpful because the issues that we were facing were all around <clears throat> the use, uses of nuclear technology and to have somebody who worked 
and was truly expert in the use to which we put nuclear medicine, nuclear technology in medicine. It was um, it was very helpful to have that expert advice. The issue of nuclear medicine, nuclear technology, um, it could cover a whole program in, in itself, but suffice it to say, it was good to have that expert advice there. So we really, um, we've always ensured that we use scientific evidence and we we don't exaggerate. We tell things the way they are to the best of our knowledge and that's essential for credibility. So we've, we've always stuck to that. What was the encouragement for you to join and when was that? Well, for me, it was in the early 1980s and the encouragement for me, like for most people, was the prospect of nuclear war and, and it was a very real prospect and we shouldn't forget that the world really has come frighteningly close to that actually happening on a number of occasions. So there was no scaremongering around this issue. It was just the cold, hard fact that the world was at risk of nuclear war. And that, for me, was was a really powerful motivator. I had young children at the time, and that sort of adds to the sense of needing to make this world a safer place. And one of the things that also stands out, especially coming from a health perspective, is in medicine, in, in other health professionals, uh, other health professions too, we strive, we put in enormous effort to improve the life of a single person. I mean, for example, you look at what happens in an intensive care unit, there's an enormous amount of effort, expense, nothing is spared to save the life um, of a single person. And that's good. But if we compare that then with nuclear weapons, where millions of lives can be snuffed out in an instant by these horrendous devices, then it's just impossible to reconcile that. How can the one civilization live with both at the same time and reconcile both? The issue of nuclear weapons abolition was also, uh, also sprung partly out of my religious uh, faith um, as a Christian and I, I couldn't reconcile these weapons with anything at all that Christ did or, did or said. It was just a an absolute total stark contrast. There are a number of levels which led me to get active on this issue along with a lot of other people. How long after that did they widen the campaigns into looking at other areas of health and peace? Yes, that's an interesting question, Jan. It was probably into the 19, 1990s. So the 1980s were pretty much solely focused on nuclear weapons abolition. There were big strides made then. The risk remained, but there were, there were big strides and IPPNW, International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, with which our Australian affiliate is associated, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985 for its efforts purely in educating, educating about the effects of nuclear war. So that was the, the 1980s, and then Gorbachev and uh, Reagan came pretty close to an agreement on nuclear weapons abolition. But the thing that moved, moved things along and spurred us on to look at other aspects of militarism was was probably the end of the Cold War. And when the Cold War ended in the early 1990s, 
it was a point at which a lot of complacency set in and a lot of the peace movement sort of died away or became quite quite subdued. And yet we knew that the nuclear weapons problem was still there, so MAPW persisted. But IPPNW and MAPW in the early 1990s then started to look at nuclear weapons as just part of the problem, um, sort of the most most obscene manifestation of militarism. So it was in that time that we started to look at preventing the need to prevent all wars, not just nuclear wars, but all wars. So there was a change of policy in IPPNW in the early 1990s to focus on the prevention of all wars and in MAPW similarly, but it was a yeah, it was a bit of a, a gradual evolution. And then, of course, in 2001, with the terrorist attacks on the United States and the gross, unconscionable abuse of abuse of that moment politically to institute this so-called war on terror, which just unleashed a whole new level of violence uh, on the world and triggered you know, triggered violence in a number of places. That also has focused our attention a lot uh, on particularly Australia's role as a loyal militaristic ally of the United States. So we've been focusing on Australia's growing militarism since that time and that's manifest in a lot of ways as well. Such as? In recent years, Australia's military spending has been um, skyrocketing and particularly in the uh, you know in the last last one or two years, predictions of huge increases in our military expending expenditure, and also in very recent years, Malcolm Turnbull's announcement back in 2018 was it that he wanted Australia to be one of the world's top ten weapons exporters, which is such a, a negative and destructive way for a country to to see its future. So MAP has been doing a lot of work um, in that space, looking at Australia's role in the arms trade. There's been um, also in response to what happened in 2001, there's been a real crackdown on civil liberties in Australia and a huge number of so-called anti-terrorism laws brought into play, which are not a not a particular focus for MAPW, although we're aware and aware of them, and would support other efforts to highlight the way in which we've actually become less safe, rather than safer, as a result of all of this focus on uh, on repression of people and military strength, which is never going to make a safer world been a number of aspects. The IPPNW program, which has focused mostly on this sort of work, has, like all organisations and campaigns, we need to decide where we can have best effect with limited resources. So the IPPNW campaign is called Aiming for Prevention. That was set up specifically to focus on the problem of small arms around the world, small arms and light weapons as distinct from larger weapons systems and nuclear weapons. Um, And that program also, in collaboration with similar organisations and campaigns elsewhere, has made some very good inroads. And the the development and acceptance of the arms trade treaty was probably the best example of that 
There are some problems with that treaty, but it's a, a very good start and a good basis for doing other things. So MAPW's work in Australia is part of the IPPNW aiming for prevention work. Uh, and in our case in Australia, we're looking more at the big weapon systems that Australia is developing rather than the, the problem of small arms and light weapons. So it varies from country to country. Has there also been a focus on the plight of asylum seekers, particularly the health issues of asylum seekers? Yes, yes, there has been. And I want to give credit to the refugee action groups around the country that have really focused and done enormous, enormously valuable work in this space. MAPW hasn't had the capacity to get involved in specific cases and full-time advocacy on behalf of asylum seekers and refugees, but we've we have spoken out in support of them, and we've we've certainly collaborated and supported other organisations in their efforts. One of the reasons we do that is that armed conflict and wars are one of the greatest triggers for refugee flows. So it's part of our advocacy against armed conflict generally. And we we also recognise that, I guess this gets back to the message that everything is connected, but we also recognise that increasingly refugee flows will be driven by climate change. And climate change is also... Uh, becoming one of the biggest triggers for armed conflict and that problem will get worse in the future. So we see climate change, refugees, wars, all of these things are connected and we need to look at them in a holistic fashion. But also each organisation decides to need to decide where they can have best effort with good focus and with the resources that they have. And of course, in the last couple of years, there's covid and there's been a lot of um, pushing t- for the government to put more money into health and health prevention rather than militarisation. Yes, there has been. That message has been accepted by a lot of people and MAPW has the, uh, the campaign name Healthcare Not Warfare, which has been around for a bit. It, it's not a new concept and it's a concept that we've worked with for a long time that resources need to be diverted from military expenditure um, into better health care. I mean, our governments talk about um, security, but they use the word security in a very narrow sense to mean, to sort of indicate if you've got more weapons, you're more secure. But that's absolutely not true. So we use the word security in a in a broader and, and in its true sense to look at what really does make people secure. And people are not secure if they don't have access, ready access to affordable health care. So that's one of the indicators of a more humane and secure society. And yes, COVID has certainly highlighted the need for that more. The fact that uh, so many people have been struggling and have suffered during this pandemic, not just those who actually contracted COVID and their relatives, but suffered financially and in all all sorts of other ways, psychologically. Our focus as a nation, and for just about every other nation around the world, needs to be on looking at what are our real issues right now. COVID is one of them up there, tops. 
tops or equal tops. Climate is certainly tops or equal top as one of the huge issues that the world needs to address urgently. Australia's performance there is just so dismal. And nuclear weapons are one of the other overwhelming issues that the world needs to deal with urgently. So there are big, big things which have huge impacts on our security, which our government is either doing extraordinarily poorly on, shamefully so, or could do better in terms of healthcare. We could do much better for the healthcare of Australians. There are lots of areas of our healthcare healthcare system that need better funding and they're just not getting it. And of course, a long campaign, not just by MAPPW, but many others in, in Australia, has been the expansion of the Australian War Memorial. Yes, yes. MAPW was part of the little coalition that uh, was strongly opposing this terrible expansion of the War Memorial. That expansion is going ahead. The so-called consultation process to decide whether it went ahead or not was a it was a, a total total sham. It was an utter disgrace of a process. But the expansion is going ahead. Demolition has begun at the War Memorial. Trees are coming down all over the place. The more memorial is starting to look more like a construction site now. But that that's not the point. That's not the the major point. The major point is that the memorial where we really need to remember those all those who have died in wars and we need to think about how that might have been prevented. We need to think about how Australia goes to war and we need to think about the wars that we've been engaged in and how could things have how could things have been better so that these thousands, millions of lives were, were not uh, not lost. But rather than heading in that direction, the War Memorial's expansion is designed primarily to showcase a lot of military weaponry. You know, um, F-111, other pieces of aircraft, bits of tanks, bits of uh, naval vessels or whatever. It's all about, I'm going to use the word excitement. The Memorial, of course, would reject that word. But we believe it's designed to entertain people, put in that element of of awe and sort of gee whiz about the whole thing so that people are entertained and are distracted from the real questions, which is why did these people die? In the deeper sense, we, we commemorate these lives, but we also need to think about the deeper questions as to how things might have been different if we had better policies and why aren't we developing better policies now so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Well, finally, Sue, I expect um, for MAPW and for many other people, AUKUS is the daddy of them all. Yes, AUKUS uh, really came out of left field, caught us by surprise, caught just about everybody by surprise, which is which is an issue in itself. The implications of the deal that was announced between Australia, the UK and the US, the implications are just huge. It doesn't matter in in what way you look at it or from what perspective. It's just, uh, just enormous implications for our relationships with the region, certainly our relationship with China, 
our approach, again, getting back to this notion of security, our approach to security, how can we actually make the world a safer place rather than a more dangerous place? So all of these questions haven't been addressed and just, bam, out of left, out of left field here we've got a new military pact and the nuclear submarines, huge issues there, which a lot, a lot of people have written on the nuclear weapons proliferation potential being uh, a major one for our organisation and for others. So the fact that this announcement was sprung upon everybody is an issue in itself. Our nation and other nations need to be having discussions about how we want to relate to the world. We want to relate to the world merely in the sense that we're militarily strong um, or do we want to relate to the world in a way that says Australia is a good neighbour, we want to help our neighbours, we want to do our bit with climate action and again getting back to our relationships with our neighbours. Our Prime Minister talks about being part of the Pacific family. Well, no, Prime Minister, a family family talks about things and a family cares about other family members. This AUKUS pact and the proposed nuclear submarines are not in the interests of anybody else in our region. The notion of consultation with the Australian people and with our parliament, these things should have been discussed, discussed thoroughly at length. Um, because they're important decisions and they're not decisions to be made by a Prime Minister or a few people behind closed doors with his mates in other countries. Well, I can see that Year 41 is going to be another busy year for MAPW. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, there there is plenty to do. The nuclear weapons issue will remain prominent. Our core goal will remain nuclear weapons abolition. But um, equally in terms of our efforts, we really need to get conversations with partners and allies in Australia, and there are plenty of them, get conversations going about making Australia's contributions to the world those that actually promote a safer, less militarised world rather than a a more militarised world and one that tackles the big things like climate change and nuclear weapons. So we're going to keep going with every strength that we've got because there's too much work to do. Thank you so much, Sue. Thanks very much, Jan. Speak with you again. And Dr Sue Wareham is the current president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. The ninth Koori Art Show is calling for entries. This is your chance to showcase your work. All works entered will be exhibited at the Koori Heritage Trust. To enter, you must be a Victorian-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist aged 17 years and older. There is a total prize pool of $32,000. Go online to kuriheritagetrust.com.au to register. Entries close on the 1st of November. Koori Heritage Trust is a 3CR supporter.
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Next to the last two speakers at the recent Zoom meeting in response to the announcement of AUKUS. Last week we heard from Guy Rundle, Professor Clinton Fernandez, Dimity Hawkins and Dave Sweeney. Today, Fiji Italian, born in Australia, Telly Mangione, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Culture, History and Languages at ANU. Yeah, I think it's deeply unsettling for a lot of Pacific people based on their history. And before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm currently living and working on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here in Canberra. So today I'm speaking with you as a Pacific Studies educator in Australia and a member of Young Solara Pacific, a regional movement comprised of a constellation of activists from the Pacific that stand for a nuclear free and independent Pacific. As a woman of Fijian heritage who grew up in Sydney, I'm quite well acquainted with how Australia and big powers like the UK and US of AUKUS views the Pacific in a historical and contemporary sense. Our ocean, which accounts actually for one third of the world's surface area is viewed through a white colonial gaze that perpetuates a false narrative. Our Pacific region is constantly belittled, viewed as empty, void, and just a crossing point between several big important land masses. And yet conveniently, nearly all colonial powers from the late 19th century rushed to plant their flags on our islands and claim them as their own. For centuries, indigenous populations and islands have been seen as tiny, insignificant, and on the margins of global affairs, geopolitics, and international relations. But as the nuclear history of the Pacific demonstrates, we are on the front line and center of all these things. Most Australians have no idea that the indigenous land of this country and our Pacific neighbors have been sacrifice zones for the interests of nuclear colonialism. 318 atmospheric and underground nuclear tests took place of what is currently known as the Marshall Islands, Australia, Kiribati and French Polynesia, when there were territories or colonies of the powers of America, the UK, Australia and France respectively. The fallout didn't just conveniently end at the end of the state border drawn in the ocean. Nuclear fallout was transboundary harm and impacted many countries across the Pacific. What's more is that the Pacific has historically been a site of many instances of improper nuclear waste dumping, nuclear storage, and nuclear power gone wrong, like in the case of Fukushima. In addition, United States military bases and port facilities are likely to store these weapons with their vessels carrying them with this um, neither confirm or deny policy. AUKUS and these nuclear submarines that Australia plans to build are just another extension of this nuclear architecture in the Pacific, which is a world that has actively resisted and protested it for decades. 
The first step to building solidarity with um, Pacific peoples is education of everyday Australians about their place within the region and how we are vastly out of step with the needs and wants of Pacific peoples. How are most of the deaths at DFAT nowadays dedicated to the Pacific Islands? And I'm wondering if they know the names of Muraroa, Fangatalfa, Bikini, Kiramati, Johnston, Emufield, Maralinga and Montebello. As a young person growing up in Australia, you're rarely taught anything about the Pacific within our school system, besides maybe a Kokoda track story bound out in all types of Anzac mythology. And we see ourselves as completely divorced from the Pacific region, um, with no sense of our former colonial past with territories like New Guinea and Nauru, to just generally widespread and eco continuing economic imperialism. Instead, it's framed as either a holiday retreat or a place with corrupt and stable aid-dependent or hungry governments. Only very recently and very suddenly has Scott Morrison attempted a diplomatic step up in the region. And this is a very transparent move to counter China with America. Now he's calling islanders his Pacific family over Vale, as you say in Fijian, while at the same time agreeing to this military submarine pact without any consent of Pacific leaders. And in my opinion, as a um, Pacific person living in Australia, Australia's historically flippant approach plus their neo-colonial policy decisions like AUKUS is not family behaviour. Family in this instance means knowing, valuing and learning about Pacific people's cultural diversity, their history, their relationships and stemming political dynamics here. There's potential for true kinship and solidarity um, on an equal playing field instead of unequal paternalistic big brother and little brother scenarios. I think Australians should learn that the Pacific time and time again has stood up for a nuclear free and independent Pacific from the grassroots to governmental levels for over four decades. Australia should listen to our Pacific leaders like Prime Minister Taneti Ma'amau of Kiribati, who recently said the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal puts the Pacific at risk, or Reverend James Bhagwan from the Pacific Conference of Churches, who said AUKUS strikes at the heart of Pacific regionalism. AUKUS puts a target on the backs of my family and friends in the islands. And I think nuclear submarines are not a peaceful solution to anything. So a key priority for issues of our region are definitely climate change and COVID-19. We need to recenter these. I think we can all agree here that this is where Australian tax dollars need to go, not to a new Cold War. And yeah, on behalf of Yangsawara Pacific, we call for nuclear ways. I'm just gonna show my shirt not old nuclear ways. So yeah, that's my piece. Finally, Scott Ludlam, member of the Greens in the federal parliament for nine years and a continuing activist for the environment and anti-war. The announcement's a disaster. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's a catastrophe. But the reason it gives me hope is that it opens up a bunch of opportunities for us. I don't know that we could have put 200 really motivated and interested people together on a call about militarism and the nuclearization of our region without. And so I think this is actually a really big opportunity for us. I want to run through a couple of reasons why I think that, and then just to really kick a conversation off that we can take into the breakouts. So the first one is this. I don't think this is a government, right, that none of us would trust to fold laundry unsupervised. And they've taken on one of the most complex and difficult procurement projects that any government can take on. This is going to cost people their careers. It's an absolutely unforgiving technology, and it's going to give us so many opportunities for campaigning because it's going to be a debacle. I don't see how it can be anything else. 
the main opportunity I think it presents us with is the opportunity to refresh and to rebuild the peace movement and to set it on a new course. I think there are probably folk on this call who weren't even alive when the invasion of Iraq happened. And that fresh energy is going to meet the remarkable wisdom that we've heard from many of the speakers tonight and from the other movement elders who are on this call, people with enormous history and recall of where this movement has been, people who fought for comprehensive test ban treaty and won, uh, people who fought through the late Cold War and saw steep reductions in nuclear weapons. We lost one of our elders in the last week, and I just want to acknowledge how much we're going to miss Paul Barrett in this fight that's upon us now. The challenge that's upon us at the moment is, and where the magic is, is going to be is when that wisdom meets the fresh energy of folk who are going to be drawn into this movement by being freaked out by the absolute lunacy of this announcement. That's where the magic's going to be. There probably will be growing pains, but I reckon they're going to be a lot kinder and more interesting than shrinking pains. So if you're new to the work, then welcome to the movement cascade where every domino that we push over has a chance of taking a few more with it. And that's what I think is going to be really interesting about the next couple of months. The opportunity that we've got is that we've got some very strange allies for the time being, maybe not for the broader anti-militarism project, but at least on the subject of this deranged nuclear submarines decision, we've got Paul Keating, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull singing Kumbaya around the fire with us. We've got people like Hugh White, folk at Aspie and people in pretty conservative corners of defence and foreign policy with quite big megaphones who were scratching their heads, looking at the direct costs, looking at the diplomatic carnage that this thing has created, and arguing that there's, there's I don't think there's any need for us to feel as though we're arguing from some sort of extreme. I just don't think we are. On the 28th of last month, so what would that have been, like a week or 10 days after the announcement, essential put a poll into the field that found, I'm just going to add this polling figure to the, to the numbers that Clinton read in for us before, 55% of ordinary Australians reckon the AUKUS announcement and the submarines either won't make us more secure, i.e. there'll be no difference to our material security, or it's going to make us less secure. That's a big wedge of the Australian public, a narrow majority who think this either doesn't affect security at all, or it makes us less safe. That's a huge ground on which to build a movement. So I think what we're going to be doing is strengthening, and we've heard this tonight from folk like Dimity and, and Dave, that this will help us strengthen the deep and abiding relationship between the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement. We've got frontline communities in Perth and Adelaide who are going to be ropeable when they realise what Morrison has signed them up to the nuclear waste transports, the security, the borderline police state that you need to set in place where these things are fabricated and hosted. Every single activist and organiser in the country who could have used that $100 billion for housing affordability or to fight poverty or for clean energy projects, every single one of these people are our allies now, as well as people right across the Asia-Pacific region whose lives are at risk because of this arms race that our government has initiated. The last thing I guess I want to say is this is a big campaign. This is going to take a while. This has got a long lead time. We don't have to panic. We have time to think. It's going to span everything from port blockades to the White House. But I always take heart from the fact that even the biggest campaigns are made up of small actions. Every conversation 
that we have, every banner that we paint or every story that we share online, every event we organize, it builds into a thing that's bigger than any of us. That's what builds the movement cascade that can create a political earthquake just a step at a time. None of us know how it's going to turn out, but I would so much rather be on our side of this argument than on the other. I'm going to leave the last word from someone much more eloquent than me. I think it's the most important thing that we can be doing in a movement building phase. And there's this kind of gorgeous quote from Timothy Leary, where he says, who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on a conversation with a stranger. Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. So trust your instincts, do the unexpected and find the others. So on this call tonight, we found each other and now we've got to go find the others. And you've been listening to the two final speakers in a recent Zoom meeting, Tally Meioni and Scott Lovell. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.